So Romans 13, verse 1, says this, guys. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you, have also, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one, who loves another, uh, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So this is God's word. You ready? You ready? Yeah, right on. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you, Jesus, would, uh, you would interpret Scripture through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Um, God, that this is, this is not a passage to be taken lightly, Lord. It is not a passage, God, that uh, I can teach of just my own opinion, God. Uh, this is, this, it is necessary for your Holy Spirit to interpret the Scripture, Lord, for us. And so I pray, God, that you would be able to work in us and through us, Lord, uh, that this uh, passage would not be brushed over, Lord, but it would be etched upon the narratives of our lives. Jesus, that you would be uh, ever-present and the highest authority in our life, Lord. Um, God, we know that the Bible is not true. You are not true because the Bible says so. The Bible is true because you say so. And so, Father, uh, I, I just pray that we'd give all authority to whom it is due, not any governing authority, but to you ultimately, Lord. And so we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, forgive me, guys, if I'm, I, I look, I'm stuffy. Um, I have really bad allergies. And I don't know what's up. But So, guys, there are two main things, right, um, that you're not allowed to, when you're at, like, a business meeting or when you're, like, uh, in a dinner with, like, a business partner or you're at Thanksgiving with family, like, extended family, there's two topics that you should stay away from, right? There's two topics. What are they? Politics and religion. <laughs> Politics and religion. These are the two topics that are like, you cannot, you shouldn't talk about, right, in the same manner, in the same room with people, right? Especially people that you don't know very well. Politics and religion are the two topics people tend to want to stay away from when you're just going out to lunch or when you're, uh, you know, I, I even with a really good brother of mine, um, you know, started talking about politics and I'm like, oh, I don't really like this. <laughs> like, you know, it just kind of didn't sit well with me, right? Um, and, and Paul here is attempting to merge the two together, 
right? So super awkward. It's a very awkward portion of scripture. And if you've been here on Sunday mornings, you know that Rob loves, loves to dig deep into this because it is something that we have separated, but the Bible intermingles the two, right? The Bible all, all throughout scripture intermingles the two um, in, in a very eloquent way. And we're, we're going to be seeing that. Paul is going to tackle the two most awkward like, conversation uh, topics, which is politics and religion. Um, but first, we need to understand something that, that Pastor Mark and myself have been trying to articulate is that, is that Romans was not written chapter by chapter, okay? Romans wasn't written chapter by chapter. It was written as one long letter, right? It was written by one gigantic letter. There was no chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, right? It was just one letter to the church in Rome from Paul the Apostle. And so, and so we need to understand that every single chapter blends in with each other, right? So it's not like one chapter has this subject and then another chapter has this subject. The two, uh, all, all chapters build on top of one another, right? And so to, in order to understand chapter 13 of Romans, we need to understand chapter 12 that Mark went through last week. And the end of Romans 12 says this in verse 19. If you want to look back in your Bibles, in Romans 12, verse 19, it says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Right? So that's pretty gnarly. Do not overcome do not be overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's really that's a really important verse, right? Because he says first, Paul, Paul says, and so I want you to imagine, since it is a long letter, I want you to imagine Paul saying this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good and let every person be subject to governing authorities, right? And so it just bleeds in together, right? It flows, right? There's no chapter separation here. We need to understand that. We need to understand that because Romans 13 and being subject to governing authorities is written in light of people trying to avenge themselves, right? People trying to take the authority into their own hands, right? And trying to take control into their own hands as far as enacting vengeance on people that have wronged them, right? People trying to take justice into their own hands. And then Paul goes on to say, no, you need to be subject to the authorities that God has put in place to be administers of wrath for him, right? And he talks about it in a very, very practical way about overcoming evil with good, right? So, so we, we tend to think that Romans 13, the entire, the entire message behind it is politics, right? It isn't. It's overcoming evil with good. That, that is the theme of Romans chapter 13. It's not, okay, like, you know, the, it's not about how to set up a structure of government. It doesn't necessarily say that, right? Because there are many different governing authorities, many different type of governing authorities. What Paul is speaking of is overcoming evil with good, right? And this can be applied to any culture, right? Because there's evil in every culture. And Christians should exist in every culture, should they not, right? We are to be salt of the earth right? We are to be the light of the world, right? A city set upon a hill so that people can see with hope and look upon us, right? We forget sometimes, guys, that that early church, right? The early church was under a very oppressive government, right? 
We forget that, that Rome historically is one of the most religiously oppressive nations of this time, right? Caesar was God. I think we forget that too, right? That Caesar was worshipped as a god in Roman culture. So, so the place in which they exist wasn't just being involved in politics. Rome was that politics was their religion, right? They, they, had, they, had, they, they worshipped Caesar, right, as a god, right? And so what, what Paul is saying, guys, is super countercultural because, because the people who he is writing to are under an oppressive government. They're, they're not under a government that, that is like ours, right? I mean, I, I know a lot of us like to think that we're super oppressed in the United States. We're not, right? It's growing in, increasingly more uncomfortable, yeah, right? I mean, like the gospel is uncomfortable now, right? Which is like, you know, the worst it's gotten is awkward conversations, right? But back then, guys, the Christians were heavily, heavily, and it would only increase, heavily persecuted by their government. And now Paul is saying, be subject to governing authorities. Right? And so it's super countercultural what, what, what Paul is saying here, and what Paul is exhorting um, the Roman people to do, the church in Rome. There were a lot of people in this time, especially Jews, who would take it upon themselves to bring down the oppressive regime of Rome through force, through brutality. There was a lot of groups, especially Jewish organizations, right, that would try and bring down the Roman regime, the oppressive Roman government, through violence and through terrorism. The people of that day who were the largest group of people who would assassinate Roman officials, who would go um, to different uh, uh, political and, uh, and Roman ceremonies, and they would terrorize, and they were called zealots. Uh, the, the historian Josephus would call them dagger men, right? These were assassins and terrorists, Jewish assassins and terrorists that would go on and try to bring down Rome through violence and through force. One of those zealots was known as Simon the Zealot. You guys may recognize him from Mark chapter 3 and other portions of scripture. He was one of the disciples chosen by Jesus, right? One of the dagger men, one of the zealots, one of the assassins, right? One of the people who believed that Rome was so oppressive that it required them to, uh, to go away from God's character and actually they take it upon themselves to bring down the oppressive regime. So it was almost like overcoming evil with evil, not overcoming evil with good, right? And so this was a, it was an increasingly more popular uh, way of bringing down a government that they felt was oppressive. And we see this today, don't we? We see this today in the 2016 election, especially. We see an increased amount of violence, right, and terrorism, not, not from outside our borders coming in. There's more terrorism within the United States today, right? We, we attack each other more than other nations attack us, more than other people groups attack us. There is an increased amount of political violence uh, associated with our nation right now. And it is, it, is, it is the exact same theme that has been throughout all of history and that the Jews experienced at this time when they felt their government was oppressive, so they felt they needed to overcome evil with more evil, right? And Paul would go in and exhort them and say, no, we need to overcome evil with good, right? 
what Paul's saying here, he is arguing that the people placed in government are placed there by God. He says, he says, the people in government are placed there by God. Even if they're not obeying God, even if they're not placing themselves under the authority of God, that the people in government are placed there by God. That's what he says. That's what Paul says. Now, I'm telling you, uh, relating to you, I think that's crazy, okay? I, I, I'm, I'm being real with you, okay, that, that I look at this. Now, now, we may immediately, you know, some of you may immediately look through this at the lens of the United States, Right? Oh, of course. Well, it was established by God. You know, our founding fathers, many of them, not all of them, were, uh, were very Christ-loving, God-fearing men who established a representative form of government um, in, in checks and balances so that the people would not be oppressed, right? And that it, was a very, it was a very prayerful and righteous way of, of bringing up a nation, right? I mean, our founding fathers had their sins, but they, a, a lot of them loved the Lord. Right? And so if we, look at through, if we look at this through the lens of the United States, we're like, okay, I can see that, this government, government being established by God, right? that, that God has elected certain authorities to be over our lives. Right? I, I, I can maybe see that. However, my immediate reaction right, is really, every authority has been instituted by God. Like even like the Nazi regime, Right? Idiom means mass genocide of thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Ugandans. Right? Mao. Right? So, 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 you know, so that, that's my that's my beef, right, with this passage, right? That that's that's where my mind goes. Is that if if Paul here is saying this, he's saying, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, right? And so, so that's something in me that I struggle with, right? Because none of us, in hindsight, would, would look at the Nazi regime. And if we were there back then, none of us would be like, knowing what we know now, obviously, right? We can't speak for the German people that lived there in the society of that day, right? I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. obviously, right? We weren't them. But, you know, looking back at that, we'd say, well, well, of course we would resist the Nazi regime. What Paul is saying must be contextual, right? So we have to deal with that question, right? We have, we have to, we can't just ignore that, right? We, we, we can't just ignore the fact that there are so many oppressive regimes out there and, 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 and the fact that Paul is saying, well, the governing authorities have been instituted by God. So us in America, we're able to, we're able to kind of graze past that with our governmental institution. I know a lot of us are in mistrust of government these days and stuff like that. Um, but I, 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 we, we have to look at this in, in a, even a global perspective. What if somebody from, I, you know, what if, what if somebody from communist China is, you know, reading this, right? What if, what if, someone, what if someone from Nigeria is reading this? You know, a, 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 Bible, a Bible-loving, Jesus-centered Christian is reading Romans chap, chapter 13 in Nigeria under an oppressive government, arguably one of the most oppressive governments that we have. So, so, so what are they supposed to do, right? What are they supposed to do when their children are being taken, Oh, yeah, take my kid. I have to be subject to governing authority, right? So, so what about them, right? 
And I'm going to tell you that I don't have an incredibly satisfying answer for you. Okay? I don't have an incredibly satisfying answer for you because Paul doesn't necessarily follow up on this statement very well. Perhaps because he, like, he, he wants to put the emphasis on overcoming evil with good. Okay? But I will, I will say this. My answer is this. That God, in his disciplining character, in his allowing us to have free will, gives people the government that they allow themselves to have. That God, in his, in his sovereignty, but also in what we talked about in Romans 9, in his, in his allowing us to ins- make institutions based on our belief systems, allows us to make governments that reflect our ideals. And out of apathy and a lack of knowledge of the Lord will spring forth oppressive regimes, will spring forth bad governments. So, so instituted by God may mean, may mean that he has allowed us to make up institutions and whether they are used for the blessing or for discipline, God will allow whatever governing authorities are in place to discipline his people and to help his people. Whether it be through, all right, this is going to be a thriving place, or whether this is going to be a place where I put the plow, right, to till up the soil, right, where, where, where better institutions may arise as Christians decide themselves out of obedience to my word to overcome evil with good. I don't have the most incredibly satisfying, I know that's not an answer that is like, oh, totally, no doubts anymore, right? I, I, I know that's not an answer for you that will relieve all doubt, but I will tell you this, that God's character and what he, what he brings to the table is an opportunity for Christians to be a part of any political process, whether it be in Nigeria or whether it be in you know, the United States, to overcome evil with good. That is the thrust of Romans chapter 13. Because, and, and that's why I have to keep telling you guys that it was written as one long letter. We can't separate Romans 12 and Romans 13, right? Pastor Mark went through, here's what godly character looks like. And if you weren't here last week, either watch the sermon or just take like 30 seconds to read Romans chapter 12, right? That it's one long letter. And Paul says, here is what a Christian looks like. And he ends with godly character in don't avenge yourselves. Don't take up violence in in, in light of oppression, but overcome evil with good. And that's why he says, now now be subject to your authorities. And then he's going to talk about being a good citizen in the midst of whatever government you find yourself under. I have news for you. Christians are going to be able to exist and thrive in whatever government you put them under, as long as they are subject to God's authority and guidance and commands. And he does command that we be a part of the process, that we be a part of whatever governmental institution we are under. 
that we affect the community that we live in. An example of God allowing um, not necessarily what he has commanded us to do, but giving the people what they desire is Saul, King Saul. See, God had set up a system of government in which he was the king, right? God was the king, right, in Judges. God, God is the one who established the government. God was the one over the institution. And then eventually, the people are like, no, no, we want a king like all the other countries, right? We want a king like everybody else. Everybody else is king. Why don't we have a king, right? God says, you don't need a king. You have me. And you have the people that I have appointed to represent me. You have the elders and you have the judges to protect you. What else do you need? And they say, no, we want a king, Right? We want a king to, to rule over us, to govern us. All the other countries have one. And so, and so what God says is, fine, here's your king. And it was Saul. And we see later on, Saul was not an ideal king. He was not a good ruler. He was a great military leader, bad person. And so out of this, guys, that became the Israeli monarchy, that God never instituted, right? But, but, through God's sovereignty and his love, in place of Saul, he gave us who? David, right? King David. And God redeemed that whole process, right? And out of the line of David, we would have the true king, King Jesus, right? And so God redeems these things. But when, when, when the people ask for their own political institution, God says, okay, that's what you want right? Bad regimes come from the apathy of people, right? Nazi Germany didn't just happen, right? Hitler's not like, hey guys, you know, I'm going to be Hitler, right? I don't know. Like, he doesn't just come in like, hey, I'm going to oppress all of you. He, he slid, people elected him. They brought him in, right? And, 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 so, and, and so through the relinquishing of liberty and through the relinquishing of of what we know to be right, these institutions will take place, right? And God will allow that to happen, either for good or for bad, either for blessing or for discipline purposes. Either way, God gets the glory eventually. I know that's not a super satisfying answer, and I'm sorry I can't give you a better one. But in light of Scripture and the examples that we're given, that's, that's what it is. The ability to formulate government is a trait humanity has because of the way God operates. God operates within government, right? He has his own kingdom. Heaven will be a kingdom, right? There will be a government established in heaven, right? God is our king. Christ is our king. It will be a perfect government. Government is of the Lord, guys. God is not an anarchic, and whatever, anarchy. He's not a God of anarchy, right? He's not a God of anarchy. He's not a God of chaos. In fact, the world was in chaos and disorder, and then God spoke it into order, right? And in, in, in our new earth, heaven, God will establish a perfect government of order, right? Not an oppressive regime, but one of love and overcoming evil with good. That is why our duty as Christians is to transform government through civil obedience, not disobedience, right? By affecting the communities around us. So go back to verse two. Go back to verse two. This is a Bible study, so stay with me, okay? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So first of all, guys, Paul is saying, Paul is saying that, that government exists to provide a level of accountability. Government exists to provide a level of accountability for things that we would do that are dangerous to society, right? Traffic laws are there for a reason, right? You know, we, we, don't, we don't get to say, well, well, I'm under grace, not the law, right? So I'm going to speak. You know, we, we don't get to say that. God is saying, no, I, I've, I've instituted a government authority in order to protect society. It's a level of accountability, and we should be grateful for it. We should be grateful for certain laws, guys, because they, they keep us, they keep us together as a society. They keep us from just being at the whim of whatever liberty we believe we should have, Right? And Paul is also saying that resisting and tugging and fighting and arguing, all of these things that we see today, are only going to incur the wrath of government, not transform it. I'm going to say that again. Tugging and fighting and arguing are not ways to bring about transformation and change. They bring about wrath and resentment, right? Not a lot of change occurs from yelling, We see this in the difference between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., don't we? Right? We see this throughout our history, that peaceful protest always trumps yelling and violence. You know, we, it, it's, it's funny how in our history books, when, when we grow up as kids, that we learn about all the world wars. We learn about the Civil War. We learn about World War I, World War II. We learn about Vietnam, Right? We learned about all of these wars. Did you guys know there's thousands and thousands of peaceful protests in our nation's history that we're, we have never learned about in our public schools? Because we're a nation of war. We're a nation of violence, right? There's so much peace that has happened. There's so much peaceful protests that have occurred throughout our nation's history that have brought way more change than any civil war or any foreign war. Diplomacy has triumphed far more statistically than war has, right? But we don't learn that in school, you know? We don't learn it. But I want to let you know that, that, that peace, right? That peaceful rhetoric and loving your neighbor goes farther than violence and arguing debate. It goes much further. And what Paul is also saying is that no rational government, now I, I say rational, <laughs> No rational government imprisons people that start soup kitchens in their neighborhoods. No rational government uh, ever shuts schools down because there are too many teachers who love their students. No rational government looks at people who are starting orphanages and like, watch those people, kind of shady. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that government, the only reason you should ever be afraid of the government, at least in a rational government, right, that is established by, by people who love the Lord or is, who is established by people who want to keep society together, that no rational government is ever going to punish good deeds. That, you, that, that Gabriel's house, right, One, a, a house in Oxnard that helps battered women, right, 
and helps, and helps women and children in need. That, nobody looks at them and is like, do you know what? We've got to find them for what they're doing, right? The police aren't going there like, oh, what are they doing here, right? I'm on the board at the CPC, right? Mo- many times, the, the government, door, they're, they're, they're open to us because they, they do good work, right? Government doesn't punish good deeds, really. And I, once again, I say rational, <laughs> rational governments. So what if government is irrational? We go back to verse one, right? For it says, for there is no authority except from God. God's authority is first and foremost, right? So when a government is doing something contrary to the character of God, that's when God's authority trumps government's authority. Does that make sense? That's when God's authority trumps government's authority. So going back to Romans 12, where it says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, give him food. If your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. And later on, don't ever be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It means that you should not be seeking justice for yourself or for others, as if God has not already set up channels to administer his own justice. Do not think that you are the administer of wrath for God. That you, you, are, you are God's exercising authority and ambassador here on earth to punish those who are wrongdoers. God has set up institutions for that. You overcome evil with good. Guys, the, I, 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 this isn't in light of what happened in Newbury Park because that was something totally separate. Um, but there are still people burning Planned Parenthoods. There are still people bombing, like, uh, places that administer abortions. That is a perfect example of overcoming evil with evil. And every sin is equal in God's eyes. There are people still burning Planned Parenthoods. It happens a lot, actually. More often than you would think. They're trying to avenge the unborn. But God says, vengeance is mine, not yours to administer. I, I alone hold vengeance. Do you know why God alone holds vengeance in his hand? Because he alone is good. God alone is the administer of wrath because God alone is the only one that hasn't sinned, right? That's why Jesus says when they were about to stone this woman who had clearly committed sins, right? The woman was not innocent, okay? But he said, well, okay, you guys are ready to stone her. He who's without sin cast the first stone. And he picked up the stone, like, he is without sin. And they all started to leave, right? And in that moment, it was Jesus and her. Her, a clear adulteress who has sinned in the sights of God. And here, the Christ, the minister of justice, who has every right then to say, they can't stone you, but I can Oh. In that moment, God, God, you know, Jesus can, because he is perfect, be an administer of wrath and justice. But instead, mercy triumphs over judgment. He said, go and sin no more. Right? We ought to mimic the character of Christ by overcoming evil with good. 
So many people, guys, so many people. How could government allow all these abortions to be taking place? How can government allow all these atrocities to happen? And God is saying, how could you let this happen? Especially in America where we live in a representative form of government, right? Especially when we, we get to write the narrative, right? You know, not a lot of countries get the privileges we get. We get to be, like government is subject to us, right? There's the electorate. Our representatives represent us, right? And so, and, and, and so in light of all these people, how can God let all these atrocities happen and all this? How, how can you let it happen, right? It happened under your, your watch. And Paul answers, how, how can we overcome the evils of society with good? All right, and guys, I, I, have no, I have no agenda here, right? This is God's word. I mean, we're going through Romans, right? So for those of you who are thinking, oh, so political. I, I mean, this is God's word, right? And I, I, I'm trying my best to, you know, stick to what the text says here, right? So we can't write this off necessarily. How do we overcome the evils of society with good? How can we be used by God in our community? And I would say Paul answers with three points. Or, you know, three points of advice, right? The first one. The first one yeah, that we find in verse 5. So go to verse 5. Everyone there? Verse 5. Yep. It says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay all what is owed to them. Taxes whom taxes are owed, revenues whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Right? Paul's first point for affecting our society, for overcoming evil, with good, right? Overcoming evil. Remember, this is the entire theme of Romans chapter 13 is overcoming evil with good. Overcoming evil with good. Paul is saying the first step to doing that as far as society is concerned. Now, us personally, that's a whole different story, right? We dealt with that in Romans chapter 12. I love what Pastor Mark went through. He said, you know, I think we trick ourselves in thinking we're our own property, right? We're property of God, Right? You know, you know, Christ owns us, right? We need to be, we ought to be presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and blameless to God for good works, right? And that's what Romans 12 goes, goes through here. Here's, here's how the, you can allow yourself to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's how you individually be, be, can become more caring, right? Compassionate, loving, right? Loving without hypocrisy, as it says. Here's how you can be a person who is individually holy and righteous, not perfect, but because of what Christ has done for you on the cross, that his righteousness is imputed on your behalf, and you get to now be a partaker in his character. That's what Romans 12 is about. And now we go from the individual to the society. How can we as those individual, those righteous people that are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, be effective in the larger community of wherever we are, right? Be a good citizen in your civil community. That's the first one. Be a good citizen of your civil community. You may not agree with whatever party is in power or the bills that are being passed, okay? 
Lord knows, you know, we, we live, we live in a, a divided nation. That's for sure. There's a myriad, even within the church that seems like, I think we all just assume everyone's just conservative, right? That's not true, right? Um, especially in my conversations with CLU and Channel Island students that are usually here, right? You know, I, you, I, I learned very quickly that, you know, just because you're Christian doesn't mean you're conservative, right? And so, so we all have, you know, these different belief systems, right? And we may not agree with this or that, but if it's been made law, the only way you can combat it, if you disagree with it, is by being involved. Is by being involved. You know, you, you can't sit back having not voted and then complain about a bill that was passed, especially in California. Especially in California, where ballots are passed based on, like, how many, how many signatures people got, right? And then we get to vote on pretty much every single little tiny law that is passed. I mean, not every single one, but we as Californians have the privilege and the burden of pretty much voting for everything, right? And so especially in California, we, you know, we... If we don't vote, we have no right to like sit back and say, oh, I can't believe this, right? We start by being involved. The only time God's people were ever asked to be people of war, right? Were ever asked to be people um, that combated, right? The people that used violence was when they were taking over the promised land and protecting it, right? If, if their nation was being attacked, right? They, they, they defended themselves, Right? The only time Israel was asked to be people of war is when they were overcoming, right, 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 they, were, they were taking over the promised land, and then they were instituting it and protecting its borders. Right? After that, God's people were not called to use force to get anything, even in the case of oppression. Even in the case of oppression. An example of that is Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.4. And Rob brought this up, uh, up a few weeks ago. Jeremiah 29.4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who have been sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Babylon went into Jerusalem, basically said, uh, hey, this place is mine now, right? Your home, it's mine. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's mine, not yours, so get lost, right? <laughs> that's, that's essentially what Babylon said. And Israel being smaller is like, uh, I guess we don't have a choice, right? And so Babylon uh, took a bunch of Jews into captivity and then dispersed the rest, right? So, so they were in exile from their own country. They were under the oppression of Babylon, B- Babylonian society that was very oppressive, very idolatrous, right? A lot of pagan uh, evil, evil stuff went on, right? And we see this in the book of Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar. We see it in the book of Jeremiah. So, so people are exiled, Right? The Jews are exiled under an oppressive form of government, right? Oppressive government. And what is God's advice to them? His advice to them in verse 5 is this. Under an oppressive government, his advice is not fight. This is his advice. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they might bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God's people do not assemble as armies and conquer with force and brutality. Of course, in light of threat and terror, there are times where we must go and defend ourselves, of course. 
but we do not yell or debate our way into making society a better place. Nor do we use violence to accomplish what God has desired. We ought to be good citizens. We ought to be good citizens. We build instead of tear down. We have good marriages and raise good children. We seek the welfare of the city, even if it's mean to us. Guys, this is the call of the Christian. The call of the Christian, as Christ did, is to surround surround the city with love and care and compassion. He says right here, but seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. Meaning you don't take anything from the government you give to it, right? You don't take from society, you give to society. As Jesus would say, it is better to give than to receive, right? This is all about going about the welfare of society, right? We as Christians, we don't come in and conquer and occupy with violence and yelling and debate. We go in, we build houses, we build families, We invite our neighbors over to dinner. We go into our businesses and we we don't just work next to each other. We work with each other. We go into whatever places we are and we occupy with love and compassion in light of what Christ has done for us. God's people do not assemble armies and conquer with force. We build. We build. And that's God's advice in an oppressive regime. Right? In a Babylonian regime that is very oppressive, not sensitive to whatever ceremonial laws they had, to whatever religious beliefs they have. Government wasn't sensitive to that. But God still said, I'm not going to ask you to resist with force. I'm not going to ask you to, you know, build up an army for yourselves and tear down the Babylonian regime. No, I want you to love on the society that you're in and in you seeking the welfare of the oppressive government. You will find welfare for yourselves. It's a high call. It's a harder call for sure. It's easier to yell, right? And it's easier to break things than it is to build things, right? The second form of advice that, that, that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 13 is to be a good citizen of your church community. So the first one was to be a good citizen, right, of your civil community, to be a part of your neighborhood, to be a part of the community in which you exist and find ways to build it up in whatever context you exist in, right? For some of you, that's in the business place. For some of you, that's in your homes and in whatever, uh, you know, some of you, you know some moms in your neighborhood for you moms, Right? For those of you school, you know, most of our college students have left. But what we try to, you know, you are in your own little context, right? And whatever civil authority is near you, you don't tear it down and you don't complain, but you seek to affect it. So that's the first one is be a good citizen of your civil community, whatever community you exist in. And the second one is be a good citizen of your church community. Be a good citizen of your church community. And he says this in verse 8, oh, nothing Owe no one anything except to love one another. That's very important. So, owe no one anything except to love one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, it says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. 
for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So, so Paul is saying, you know, he's like, hey, guys, like, I don't have to tell you to love one another, right? You're already doing it. Keep doing it, right? That's what he's saying. I love how practical Paul is sometimes. I'm not going to, like, go into this whole, like, three chapters into telling you how to love one another. You guys are doing it? I don't need to tell you anything. For that, indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So he's saying, I, I'm not going to tell you to love one another, but I'm going to tell you, keep doing it. It's good. And he says this, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's really, really important. Very important. I'll I'll repeat it. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Be dependent on no one. Guys, a part of being, a part of affecting the evil of society, right? A part of this theme of overcoming evil with good. A part of that is to not be dependent on the evil society. God loves us selflessly because he doesn't need us. God loves us selflessly and he can love us selflessly because he doesn't need anything from us. He can self-sacrifice. He can give to his own discretion. Because he doesn't need to take anything from us. Dependency and attachment can often breed the opposite of love. It can breed contempt, right? If you need from your government, right? If you depend on it too heavily. Now, I'm not saying if you're like a government worker, you work for the DMV or whatever. I'm not saying that. Like you get your paycheck. I know, Richard, you get your paycheck from the government. I'm not saying like, do you quit your job, right? I'm not saying that. I, I, what I am saying, guys, that a part of being an effective, effective person in the society that you're in, right, is being able to exist in your church community and needing nothing else, right? So a part of it, guys, it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the needs to all who had need, right? So in the early church, in the book of Acts, everyone would just say, okay, so... I get to like give everything now, like everything I have, I'm giving to the church, right? And it's going to be distributed amongst the needs of the saints. So people are going to be sustained. People are going to be cared for within the context of the church family, right? Emotionally, fiscally, right? We are all going to be responsible for one another. Now, it also says in Proverbs that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, right? So this doesn't mean you get to come to church and just, like, take money from them, right? That's not what it means, right? But it does mean that, as it says in First Thessalonians, that we aspire to live quietly in a minor on affairs and to work with your hands, right? Meaning we work hard and we work hard in a community so that we can provide for one another. That we can help one another. I'm going to... I was having this discussion with Megan, right? And it's always scary to say it on the pulpit, but it's biblical. So I'm just going to say it, right? So new covenant giving and old covenant giving is different, right? Old covenant giving is giving 10%, right? Giving 10%, putting in new covenant giving is giving as much as you can, right? Meaning maybe more than 10%, right? New covenant giving is saying all of my resources now belong to not me, but to my church body. All of who I am. All of my resources belong to the Lord, right? A really practical way of doing that is tithing, right? And, you know, last week, you know, we had double this amount of people and our tithe in the agape box was $8, right? (laughs) So 
that's better than the four dollars, right? That we usually get, right? But but our our, our tithing on Sunday nights is eight dollars, right? That's that's average, right? Average is eight dollars. Now, now, listen. If, if we if we exist, right, as a church body, as a church community, a part of our duty is to provide for the saints, right? Not out of compulsion, but out of gladness, right? And a part of that is caring for the church community. It says here, so that you are dependent on no one. So that you're dependent on no one. The money that's given from tithing and giving, guys, it's not like, it's not used on like just arbitrary, idiotic things. You know, we use it to help and affect the community around us, right? A lot of people have been profoundly blessed because of the tithing that occurs at Godspeed Calvary Chapel. The community that we exist in is heavily blessed on the giving, right? And the fact that we are de- not dependent on the government, right, but we are dependent within our own church community will make us more effective in our society, right? It's hard to affect a government you're dependent on, right? Because, you know, if, if you're dependent on them, right, that's, that's why I think charities, right, and, and, and charitable organizations and nonprofits do a far better job of providing for people than welfare checks, right, and food stamps. It, 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 if you guys look for every, for every dollar that's given, you know, uh, in a government and nonprofit, it's crazy. It's something like 80% of a government, you know, a government-given dollar is used for overhead, and then about 20% goes to the actual people. And it's the inverse with a nonprofit. You give a dollar to a nonprofit, about 80 cents will go to the people and 20 cents to overhead, right? And, and, and so that's why God has existed in a nonprofit, in the church community, these, these members of society who are believers affecting the community around them far better than the government can, right? This, this, is, this is how we ought to exist as believers, right? So being a good part of our civil community and being a good part of our church community. Work hard to contribute to the body of Christ in every way, in every way, emotionally, spiritually. And I'll close here. Here's the, last, here's the last portion. Paul says this in verse 8. Owe no one to anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another is fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. You guys know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Right? There, was, there was a man um, who was beaten up by robbers, you know, left for dead. He could, barely, he could barely lift up his head. He couldn't even call for help. Right? It says that two religious men had passed by him. They looked at him, and, and they just kept walking. No one helped him. And then a Samaritan, the enemies of the Jewish people, a Samaritan looked upon this man, and he had pity. And he exercised what is called new covenant giving. He exercised new covenant giving, which means he not only helped him up, he not only, you know, stitched him up, but he took him to an inn, right? He cleaned him up, he gave him a room, and then he just gave the innkeeper, here's all my money, right? Whatever he needs, give it to him, right? Whatever he needs, right? And that's scary, that's scary. But the third point here, guys, is to be a good neighbor. Be a good neighbor, Jesus said in John 15, 13, he said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for a friend. Greater love has no one than this, has no man than this. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for somebody. 
And a part of affecting our society is not only to be, you know, voting well, to be informed and to be effective in the community around us. It's not just being a part of a good church community and making sure that we're giving and making sure that we're being generous to one another and praying for one another. But another part of it, guys, is simply being a good neighbor to whoever's around you. And Jesus, and Jesus, guys, exercised the ultimate self-sacrifice on the cross. He showed the ultimate form of love that for you and I, he died for us, right? He, He died so that we would have life, right? And as his servants, as his people, as his covenant people, as his bride, right? And what's really cool that, that Jesus describes us as his bride, and I'm going to go into communion now. Communion is right here for you guys, and we're described in the Bible as his bride. And, you know, I say this a lot, that when, when Jesus, when, when he was giving the first communion to his disciples, he, he passed over the cup, which was a, a, it was, it was a symbol of a marriage proposal. And he said, this is my covenant, take and drink of it, right? And that was, that was the first time where the people of God became the bride of Christ. That's what covenant, that's, that's what this represents, guys. That's what communion represents. It, it represents us saying, I do to Jesus. You know, he has sacrificed so much for us. And communion is partaking and saying, I am, I'm the bride. And it, if you know anything about marriage, biblically, I mean, the two become one flesh. Meaning it, it's, no, it's no longer just husband and wife. It's like you're, you're one. And so whatever Christ's desires are, as, as his bride, that's our desires too. Whatever he's about, right, is what we're about too. And, and since Christ laid down his life and did the ultimate sacrifice on the cross for us, we too, in whatever context we are in, sacrifice our own comfortabilities, sacrifice our own resources, sacrifice our time, Sacrifice everything so that people might understand that they are so profoundly loved. And guys, there's so many sins that exist in our community. But do you know what it says? It says that love covers a multitude of sins. That love covers a multitude of sins. So that by our love for our neighbors, our love for our church community, and our love for those that are placed under the, over authority over us in government, by our love for them, it will cover whatever sins they have committed against us. And we will, by the grace of God and by his Holy Spirit dwelling within us, overcome evil with good and break the cycle that us Christians are finding ourselves in of overcoming evil with evil, right? So we're going to be effective in our communities, right? We're going to be effective in our communities, in our jobs, in our workplaces, in whatever government institution we're in. We're going to be partakers of the church community. We're going to be givers, not takers, right? We're going to exist in a family-like environment, and we're going to care for one another. And then whatever neighbor is around us, whatever person is around us, we are going to exercise the, the love of the Good Samaritan by laying down our lives for them and our resources. And guys, I'm not just talking money, right? Forget about what I said, the whole tithing thing, if that's tripping you up. Just, guys, just love people. Give what you have to them. If that's just time, then give just time, right? If that's just a text saying, I'm praying for you, just give that. Whatever you can, though, give to people. In a society of takers, we ought to be givers. Amen? Lord, we love you, and we're excited to partake in worship with you, God. I pray as we 
partake in the elements, Lord, as we remember the sacrifice that you made for us, that your body was broken for the remission of sins, God, and that your blood was spilt and through, through your purity, Lord, through you washing us clean on the cross. On that cross, you bore all of our sin, all of our shame, all the baggage that we hold, and you put it to death, and it stays there in the grave, Lord. I pray that we would worship with unchained hands, God, that no matter how many people are in the room, Lord, that we would worship as a community, as one voice. We are not just a bunch of individuals, Lord. We are a body of believers. And I pray that as we worship, we'd admonish one another. We'd encourage one another. We love you, Lord. We give you this time. Bless the worship that we're about to partake in. May it be a sweet-smelling aroma to you. In Jesus' name, amen.